The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Amen. I'd like to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Revelation 2 that you just saw, uh, heard Chase read, and we're going to be looking this morning at the church, Christ's letter to the church in Pergamum. And as we do, I want to begin by asking, what do you think of conspiracy theories? I, I, it may be that some of you actually are conspiracy theorists, although you've never admitted it to me. Uh, but I guess uh, if you don't know what that means, a conspiracy theorist is somebody who believes that there's a, a dark conspiracy of intelligent, powerful individuals that are seeking to take over and dominate the world. Now, I think these became very popular uh, during the Cold War when there was a concern over communist infiltration and takeover of our, of our structures. There also was some concern during the JFK uh, assassination that the industrial military complex had done it. It wasn't a, a lone gunman. Some have even uh, postulated that we didn't actually land on the moon. Have you heard that one? And that it's all a, a, a hoax, a vast conspiracy. Some of the darker ones and the more uh, broader ones go back even to the Middle Ages, to the Knights Templar and to the, uh, the Illuminati. And, and even in our midst, some people that you think are just upstanding members of the community are actually part of this secret society with secret handshakes and, and all of that. Things are not uh, what they appear. Well, this morning, you may wonder why I'm starting the sermon this way. It's because I actually believe there is a vast, dark conspiracy of powerful individuals that are seeking to dominate and rule the world for their own glory. And I think you know exactly who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Satan and his demonic forces. It's actually vaster than we can imagine. It's more powerful than we can imagine. I think if we were actually able to see the demons, the, the powers and principalities, the rulers and authorities, I think we would quail immediately and be terrified. How much more their king, Satan, who is seeking and has been seeking to rule and to dominate the world. The reason I mention it in light of this letter is because Jesus is speaking to a church in Pergamum. He says twice where Satan dwells or where Satan has his throne. Now as the book of Revelation unfolds, we're going to see revealed all kinds of things that have been hidden from our eyes. Things that we didn't see. First and foremost, the glory of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 1, we have this incredible uh, vision of Christ moving through the seven golden lampstands. And those lampstands represent local churches. But they also, uh, as he addresses those seven local churches in Revelation 2 and 3 with these seven letters, they're speaking to all Christians throughout all time. At the end of each of these seven letters, we have these words, He who has an ear, let him, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is a timeless message, these seven uh, letters in Revelation 2 and 3 to all Christians throughout all time. So we're going to see revealed in the book of Revelation the invisible, the hidden ministry of Jesus Christ to the local churches. And hopefully that's going to go on even here in our midst today by the Spirit. But we also have unfolded for us uh, the invisible, hidden spiritual realms. And we have unfolded for us the future and where we're going. So these things are hidden from our sight. Things are not what they appear to be. In the, later in the book of Revelation, Revelation 12 in particular, we're going to have revealed for us the history of Satan, this 
this uh, ancient dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, it says there in Revelation 12. And when we'll, uh, we'll get to that, we'll talk more about that in time. But in that chapter, we learn that Satan, a creative being, uh, perhaps the most glorious and powerful of all the angels, tried to take over heaven in some kind of an insurrection. I think Isaiah 14 gives us a picture of his ambition, his, his evil ambition to ascend and to take over the throne from the Most High and to supplant God and rule the universe in his place. And he led a rebellion of other angels who we now know as demons and they were defeated. Uh, the archangel Michael defeated him and he was cast down to the earth. In other places in scripture, as we'll see in a few minutes, he's called the God of this age or the God of this world. As I mentioned in Isaiah 14, he is the puppet master behind the king of Babylon. And so actually as you read Isaiah 14, you're not certain if, if the Lord is prophesying an oracle against the king of Babylon or against some malevolent force behind the king of Babylon. I think it's actually both. That the Lord there is addressing the evil king of Babylon, a phys physical, literal king who's ruling an empire. But behind him, the language just goes beyond just a human evil ruler. But a puppet master, kind of like a, a marionette who's, who's able to make the rulers of the world dance to his tune on invisible hidden strings, and that is Satan. And so in Revelation 13, we have this dragon standing by the shore, and he calls out this beast, uh, the Antichrist, in, in images coming from Daniel chapter 7, where there is a series of beasts, one after the other, the implication is in Revelation 13 that Satan is really the one orchestrating all of these evil human empires for his own purposes. Now as we come to this church in Pergamum, we're going to learn something else. And that is that Satan, though he has a global focus, he is active in special ways in certain physical localities, certain geographical places, certain cities. I'm not saying that Durham is a place where Satan has his throne. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is that this letter has the power to make the scales fall from our eyes and to see a darker purpose behind the kind of issues that we're facing in our time today. And so there in Pergamum, Satan has his throne. All of this, this dark kind of malevolent intentionality of Satan in this world is woven together in a system of evil allurements that are very powerful that are seeking to, to destroy the people of God and draw them into sin, called the world. In 1 John chapter 2, it says in verse 15 through 17, Do not love the world or anything in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lusts of, of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. And the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So Satan had a throne of power in Pergamum. And the world system that he had crafted there was a very powerful magnetic force on the souls of the Christians there in Pergamum, drawing them to evil, drawing them to sin. So this letter to the church, I think, is a timeless warning for us here in the West in America to be mindful of what Satan is doing to lure us into sin. And we're going to talk more about this same theme in the next letter next week. So there's a, a bit of a combination message between these two letters that are going to be very, very similar. So the context, Revelation 1, Jesus appears in a, in a white robe uh, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his, his chest. 
with uh, eyes of blazing fire and feet of burnished bronze. And he holds in his right hand seven stars and he's moving through the seven golden lampstands. And these represent his active, consistent ministry to the church, his church universally, but specifically to local churches in certain localities. Now this letter begins actually rather ominously. It has a different feel. We've already seen Revelation, the first letter in Revelation 2, the the letter to the church at Ephesus. And uh, there he has some very positive, very encouraging things to say to that church at Ephesus. And he begins with these encouraging words. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So that's comforting. A sense of his power and his, and his protection for the churches and his active ministry. It's very encouraging. And then to that little persecuted church in Smyrna that we looked at last week, he says this, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. So again, very comforting. But he begins this letter, it seems very ominously in verse 12. These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. It's very, very powerful here. There's a sense of warning, <clears throat> a sense of the threat if this church will not heed the warning in reference to sin. So what is this sharp double-edged sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth? This can be nothing less than the powerful, active Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says this, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So this double-edged sword is the penetrating active ministry of the Word of God that comes from His mouth. And Jesus has been speaking that Word throughout all generations of redemptive history up until the New Testament was completed. And He spoke through prophets in the Old Testament. He spoke through apostles in the New Testament. And thus we have the Word of God, the Bible. And why is it called a sharp double-edged sword? Because of its penetrating ability. I think that the double-edged sword always has to do with Christ's attack on sin. It always is essentially negative. He's going after sin. But he does it differently in his own people as he does concerning his enemies. The double-edged sword toward his enemies slaughters sinners. But toward his people, it's more like a surgical scalpel that's able to cut out the tumor of sin. And so there's a sense of threat. At the end of this letter in verse 16, he's going to say, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, at the end of this book of Revelation, we have depicted the second coming of Christ in might and power. And at that point, I believe the Antichrist will be aggressively reigning on earth, will have gathered a vast army to wipe out whatever there's left of the people of God. And Jesus comes down from heaven... In Revelation 19 with the armies of heaven. And in Revelation 19.15 at the time of the second coming it says this. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So there the, the double-edged sword is an instrument of wrath to destroy Christ's enemies. And so at the end of that chapter in Revelation 19.21 it says, The rest of them, the army that was following the Antichrist, were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the sword, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So as we read this letter to the church of Pergamum, it immediately starts off very ominous, a sense of warning. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. 
Now, as I've said, he talks about the localized evil. I know where you live where Satan has his throne. Do you see that in verse 13? Now, Satan has a worldwide empire. It's invisible. It's hidden from our sight. The word of God is the one that comes and tells us that it exists. We wouldn't know any other way. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says this, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So there's an essential blindness, but there Satan's called the God of this age. 1 John 5.19 says very powerfully, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And then Ephesians 6.12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So there's a division of a hierarchy of evil powers under Satan. Hence the plural, rulers, authorities, powers of this dark age, spiritual forces. So there's many demons, many rulers, demonic rulers under Satan's overarching overarching uh, empire. Colossians chapter 1 speaks of thrones and gives the comforting message that all of these thrones and dominions and powers were actually created by Christ and ultimately for Christ. It says in Colossians 1.16, For by Christ all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And that's comforting to us, isn't it? Because he is the creator, the ruler, and he will be the judge of all of these dominions and thrones and powers. The book of Daniel implies territorially focused demonic power. When it speaks of the king of Persia that withstood a heavenly messenger for 21 days so that he couldn't get through and bring the message to the prophet Daniel, the king of Persia. And so that gives that sense of that mixing together of the heavenly realms and the earthly realms. Persia being an earthly empire. But this ruler is behind the scenes. He's invisible but very powerful. So that's the idea here uh, concerning this place where Satan has his throne, where he dwells. Now, in his temptation of Jesus, Satan actually claims rulership over the entire earth. In Luke chapter 4, he says, All the kingdoms of the world have been given to me, and I can give them to anyone I want. So, Satan and his demons can set up thrones of power in specific areas, an evil base of operation where Satan has his throne. Now, let me just stop and just give you a word of personal testimony. I feel that I've encountered this many times in my ministry. I mean, you can't prove it. But you just sense that there's a demonic power more vigorously active in a certain locality than in other places. And a lot of it just has to do with what's going on in those places. For example, I uh, lived near Salem, Massachusetts, and we used to do a Halloween ministry in Salem. And there, was, uh, there were 3,000 registered witches. They came from all over the world to live there. And they were serious about their occultic practices. It was a very dark place, but especially Halloween. It was, a, it was a, a kind of a high dark festival for them. And they did a lot of recruiting into their occultic practices on Halloween. So I felt there was a satanic presence at Lori Cabot's house. She was the official witch of Salem. Imagine being the official witch of Salem or of the state of Massachusetts. But she was, and it was just a de- an evil place. I felt it also at the abortion clinic that I used to go to on Saturday mornings in Brookline, Massachusetts. Just 
thousands and thousands of babies were killed there. I don't know if it's still open, but it was a very dark place. And we would go and try to persuade women not to have abortions. We were just trying to communicate uh, with them. But the anti, uh, anti-life, the pro-abortion uh, forces were there. And they would yell and scream at us and all that kind of stuff. And it was very hot. Lots of difficult battles. And then you'd see the women walking. It was just a very hard time. We were there for three hours every Saturday. And I'd go home and I remember driving in my car feeling like I was being chased. I had, I had very definite feelings of paranoia as I would drive away from that. Someone once says, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean someone isn't actually out to get you. Think about that one. Um, but I was feeling paranoid and I think there actually were some evil beings out to get me. And I used to go home and sleep for hours, three or four hours every Saturday. I don't nap, but I was exhausted by that ministry. I remember one time uh, preaching in the nation of India. I was in Pune, India. And it was just an overpowering feeling of demonic presence when I spoke. There was about five, between five to 7,000 people assembled there. And uh, I remember they were spraying this kind of weird fog to kill mosquitoes because it was in the height of dengue fever season. And so they had these these machines that would drone with this kind of drone. And then that was before the, the thing began. And then this cloud just rose and hung about 15 or 20 feet over the assembly. And it was also this, this Hindu festival of Diwali and a, fin- a festival of lights, but it was anything but light. It was very dark, demonic feel. And as I got up to preach, it's one of the hardest times I've ever had preaching in my life. I felt like invisible chains were around my chest and around my throat. I felt, as I said to somebody, I feel like I'm being driven, as we're being driven there, I felt like I was being driven to my own execution. All of these feelings were coming on me, and they were all demonic, and it went away as soon as I began preaching on the book of Philippians. Just went away. But I think it's a a feeling of of demonic, uh, demonic presence. So sometimes Satan shows his activity more in one locality than in others, depending on what's going there. And that seems to be what was happening there in Pergamum. Now, what is this city of Pergamum? Pergamum was located about 100 miles north of Ephesus, uh, with Smyrna located halfway between them. Unlike Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum was not a port city right on the uh, Aegean Sea. It was located 15 miles inland. Yet, for all of that, it was probably the greatest, most significant city in the region. Roman writer Pliny called Pergamum, quote, by far the most distinguished city in Asia. By the time that John wrote the book of Revelation, Pergamum had been the capital city of the province of Asia for almost 250 years. Now, you, can, you could visit the uh, ruins of Pergamum. They're right near a city in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, called Bergama. So it's very similar to the word Pergamum. It was built on a, on a large kind of conical-shaped hill. And most of those ancient cities we've built on high places because they're easier to defend. But this one was very striking for its height, about a thousand feet up off of the valley, off the plain. So it was a very imposing place. The most significant thing in Pergamum was a massive library of ancient scrolls. 200,000 books and scrolls. Which is incredible in that all of them were hand copied, of course, because there was no printing press back then. So it was a center of learning rivaling uh, ancient Alexandria for scope. So it was very well known. As a matter of fact, the ruler of, Al- of Alexandria at one point for- forbade the, uh, the export of papyrus, the writing uh, uh, paper, to Pergamum because he was jealous for Alexandria's position as a center of learning. So the people of Pergamum developed a kind of paper called vellum, uh, animal skins, parchment we also call it, stretched thin, and, and parchment was used for centuries after that. 
It was a strong center of, of paganism. Because of its library, Pergamon was a powerful center of Greek and Roman culture. They were very proud of Greco-Roman culture. Near the summit of that Acropolis, that high hill that I mentioned, stood an immense temple and altar to the Greek god Zeus, the king of the Greek gods. And on it was depicted the victory of the citizens of Pergamon together with the Roman soldiers against the barbarian Gauls who had invaded uh, in 189 uh, BC. They fought with the Romans. And so the people of Pergamum allied themselves with Rome and defeated the Gauls. They became fiercely loyal to Rome and Rome saw that. The imperial cult was very powerful there as a result. The loyalty of the citizens to Rome and the emperor was established clearly in 29 BC. Permission had been granted to the citizens of Pergamum to build and dedicate a temple to Augustus. This was the first temple built to honor a living emperor and worship him as a god. So that's very significant. The people of Pergamum were thus worshiping the Roman emperors as gods one after the other. So that civil religion in Asia Minor had its center there in Pergamum. Also there was a temple to the Greek god of healing, Asclepius. Uh, was honored there and pe- people, sick people from all over Asia made pilgrimages to Pergamum to be healed. So you can see the battle lines of truth being drawn. You've got ancient classical education, paganism... Greek and Roman gods, you've got the, the emperor cult and all of that versus Christianity. And so here we have the word of Christ, the truth coming out of his mouth like a sharp double-edged sword. And these Christian people are being called on to stand for truth when Satan is attacking externally, attacking with false doctrines. The battle lines are clearly drawn where Satan has his throne. On trial before Pontius Pilate, Jesus said, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Now you remember very famously, Pilate answered with sarcasm, what is truth? I think that was a great question for Pilate to answer if he had just stood and listened to Jesus. But he had no interest. He was basically saying, there is no truth. And that's similar to the way many people feel in America today. There's no absolute truth. But the answer was standing right in front of Pilate, right there. I am the way and the truth and the life, said Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the truth that God has spoken into the world. But Satan is seeking to kill, to steal and kill and destroy by the lies he tells. From the Garden of Eden, that's how he sought to assassinate souls and ruin lies. By the lies that he tells. And so Jesus said in John 8, 44, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And he's a murderer, not holding to the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. So there at Pergamon, the battle lines are drawn between truth and lies. And so in verse 12, he said, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Christ fights powerfully against Satan's lies by the inerrant word of God. The word which has poured from his mouth for centuries through his mouthpieces, the apostles and prophets. He also fights the lies in a specific locality through messengers, through through witnesses that he sends. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth... 
including to Pergamum. So later in the book of Revelation, Revelation 14, 5, it says of these witnesses, no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So they spoke the truth to their surrounding culture. Now look at verse 13. Christ commends the church for their stand for truth. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who is put to death in your city, where Satan lives. So Christ gives them a powerful commendation. You stood for the truth even in the face of persecution. You did not turn your back on me. You didn't renounce your faith in me. You didn't deny that you knew me. Even in the days of Antipas, he says, my faithful witness who is put to death in your city where Satan dwells or lives. Now, who is this Antipas? We don't know anything about him except for the, this one verse. We know that Jesus calls him my faithful witness. Wouldn't you love have, to have Jesus say that about you? To say your name, like Antipas, your name, my faithful witness. We don't know anything about his martyrdom. We can imagine, though, the circumstances. What was going on throughout Asia Minor there is that the citizens were required every year to burn a pinch of incense in, in worship of the emperor. I just said that Pergamon was the center of this imperial cult. And so it makes sense that this Antipas refused to do it. He refused to say, Caesar is Lord, like Caesar is God. Refused to say that. He said, no, Jesus is Lord. This Antipas would have been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and make that central confession, Jesus is Lord. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with the mouth that you confess and are saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Antipas had made that confession with his mouth because he believed it in his heart. And the temptation is to sever the heart conviction from the outward life pattern or behavior. I'll just burn some incense... Just you know that Caesar's not God. Just say it, but you know the truth is opposite. So you're trying to sever the heart from the body. Sever the, the convictions from the lifestyle. And he wouldn't do it. He refused. He said, I can never say Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord, even if I have to die. And so Jesus effectively was putting Antipas up on a, on a pedestal, a light shining in a dark place. And they put him to death there in that city where Satan dwells, where Satan has his throne. And that death put pressure on the whole church. Now you know they're serious. They'll kill you. Will you renounce your faith in Christ or will you stand firm and testify that Jesus is Lord? And Christ commends them. You did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas. So the pressure of Satan's lies was powerful. The church was being threatened and they chose to stand for truth. But... There were still hidden problems with this church. There was a corruption in the doctrine of the life of the church that threatened their very survival. It's not enough to begin the Christian life. You have to persevere to the end. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. We have to run a race. And that race is a race of holiness. It's a race of integrity. Integrity means you're the, you're the same person all the time. You're the same person in secret that you are in public. Integrity is like integer, oneness. There's a oneness between your mind and heart and your lifestyle. 
And there was a tumor of false doctrine leading to worldliness, leading to sin that had to be excised or they were going to die. So the church is called also then to stand for holiness when, when Satan attacks internally in your mind and your heart. True Christianity, right doctrine, must result in holy living. It can't be a severing of what we say we believe about Christ and how we're living our physical lives in this world. Satan is going to try to pull the church toward the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Personal holiness may be the greatest mark of regeneration. If you ask, how can I know, am I a Christian? How can I know if I'm born again? The question is, are you fighting for holiness by the power of the Spirit of God? 1 John 1, 5 and 6 says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Christ and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Also Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A person reaps whatever he sows. The one who sows to please his flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And also 1 Corinthians 6 says plainly, Do not be deceived. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor swindlers, nor slanderers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of, of the Lord. In other words, when Christ truly saves you, saves you out of darkness into light and begins transforming you from the inside out. Now... It's even worse, we're all fighting this battle, but when false teachers stand up and teach false doctrine about the life of the body, they're called, in this case, libertines. Here in Pergamum, they're called Nicolaitans, mystically connected to Balaam of the Old Testament. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Christ holds some things against this church. He's not completely pleased with the church at Pergamum. They are tolerating, and some of them perhaps even delighting in the teachings of Balaam or the Balaamites, and the, or the Nicolaitans. Seems like the majority of the church were faithful to Christ, but an influential minority were being led astray into sexual immorality and the eating of meat sacrificed to idols at pagan temples. That was the old sensual lifestyle that they'd been called out of. The sexual immorality of the temple prostitutes, the orgies, the indulgent feasts, all of them done in the name of pleasure, sensual pleasure, in the name of gods and goddesses. Now, I don't know if the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans are two different things or just uh, two names for the same thing. It, it really doesn't matter. You may say, who is Balaam? Balaam was a, a prophet in the Old Testament, a visionary, a seer, I guess, who we meet in Numbers 22 through 25. 
he was some kind of a mystical seer who had some ability to predict the future. Perhaps in some way the true living God had used him as a mouthpiece before we ever meet him in the numbers account. He was a prophet for hire. Someone once said a prophet for profit. So that's easy to remember. He was just in it for the money. He had no real interest, it seems, in truth or the living God. He was hired by Balak, king of Moab, after Balak had heard what Israel had done in destroying the Amorites. Balak went to Balaam to hire him to utter a prophetic curse on Israel. Balaam was severely warned again and again by Almighty God to say only those things God told him to say. The final warning came very memorably when his donkey pinned him against a rock wall, wouldn't go any further. He begins to beat the donkey. You remember the story? And the donkey speaks to him. Why are you beating me? I mean, that'd be quite a moment, don't you think? Have I been in the habit of doing this before? No, actually, you haven't. You've been a good donkey for me. I mean, what a conversation. But it really is a, it's a testimony on Balaam. It's like God can use a donkey. He can use anybody to speak for him. There's no honor in the fact that I'm speaking through you. Don't behave like an animal. There's a warning because the angel of God had his sword unsheathed, like Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth, and he's threatening him with death. And the donkey saved his life, or at least temporarily saved it, because after the oracles in which he lavishly predicted glory for the future of Israel, we don't know this from the Old Testament account, but Jesus tells us what happens after that. He secretly taught Balak what to do. It's like, I know how to, how to hurt Israel. We can turn the holiness of God, the wrath of God against his own people if we lead them to sin. It's the very thing that Satan is trying to do. He's trying to put a, a sword in the hand of God. And God's own holiness and his own justice will be motivated against his own people. And so he orchestrated uh, some Moabite party girls, some prostitutes, others, to go down and infiltrate and to lead them into worshiping the Baal of Peor. And the, the wrath of God broke out. And 24,000 of them died in that, in that day. That's Balaam. Now in Pergamum, it seems there are false teachers who are having the same effect that Balaam and the Moabite women had on the nation of Israel. They're luring church members into the same type of ritual sex and idolatry in the same pattern of the pagans of Pergamum. Peter speaks of the same uh, of the false teachers in 2 Peter 2. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed and accursed brood. They have left the straight way and have wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Baor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was re rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. But these false teachers are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words. And by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Second Peter talking about these libertine teachers, these Balaamites. And it seems like the Nicolaitans were doing the exact same thing. Probably the same people Jesus is addressing there. He begins by saying likewise or in the same way or thus, meaning the Nicolaitans, probably the modern, or for, the, for them, Balaamites are similar to them. It doesn't really matter. Honestly, Satan has a limited number of goals. 
He wants to kill your soul by a limited menu of three items. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the, of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. But he has a variety of ways of getting you there. So these could be two different patterns of false teaching or just two different names for the same. But this is the essence of the world's attack. The license. The severing of how you're living with what you say you believe. Again, the majority of the members of the church at Pergamum did not hold to these false teachings. But they were still at fault to some degree. The church is responsible for its own purity. And if there's any kind of sexual immorality going on, and the church becomes aware of, and the people are not repentant, it is the church's responsibility, based on 1 Corinthians 5, to expel those people from their midst. 1 Corinthians 5 makes this very plain. Expel the evil man from among you. Do not even eat with him. Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 5, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the evil ones from among you. You've got to be pure. That was what they should have done, but they didn't do it. And so Christ gives them a warning. Repent or die. Look at verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He calls on them to repent. The Balaamites themselves, the Nicolaitans themselves, if God would grant it to them, there's still a way open of repentance. If they would just say, I've been living in a moral life. I have not lived up to my calling as a Christian. And they genuinely repent, then they'll be forgiven. He calls on them to repent. Think differently. Make a U-turn. Live an entirely different kind of life. Come to different convictions based on the word of God. See that the Holy Spirit is telling you to live a different kind of life. Make a U-turn and start living a holy life. Start living a life that really honors and glorifies God. And bring forth fruit in keeping repentance. But if you don't, Jesus said, I'm going to come and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. That's a terrifying prospect. To have Jesus your enemy as in a military encounter. That he's going to fight against you. Recently I've seen, uh, as I drive around here, billboards and other things talking about the danger of trains. Have you seen some of these things? Like uh, if you try to jump in front of a train, there's some people that like, like to try to get out of the way of trains or jump across or even drive across at the last minute. And so the, the, the burden of the, of the public service thing is that the battle between you and the train is unequal and you will lose. All right, so like the engine of a train, average engine, engine is 150 tons. An average train of average length around here would be about 4,000 tons. So a pickup truck is going to be about four, four tons, I guess, depending on what it's loaded with. So that's outweighed by 1,000 to 1. Okay, you lose. I mean, that train is moving with a momentum that is almost unbelievable. I'm going to go geeky on you here, but the momentum is one-half mv squared, okay? Big mass, velocity, and you get crushed. Well, the battle between Jesus Christ and any created being is infinitely greater of a mismatch than that. You don't want Christ to fight against you in any way. It's a terrifying thing. Think what happened to Ananias and Sapphira when they sinned. Do you remember what happened? They just simply drop dead. They simply drop dead. When, when Jesus says, die, you die. 
When he fights against you with the sword of your mouth, when he takes your life from you, you die. He can take anything from you that you value. That's his discipline. He can bring judgment. As Paul says, should we fight against him? Are we stronger than he? And so he's threatening them with, really ultimately, with death. The heretics and their followers are directly threatened, but the warning is spoken to the entire church. The contagion of sin is so deadly, it can spread so easily, that if you're not careful, you're going to get sucked into it too. Like it said in the passage on church discipline, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. It'll spread. And so if the church isn't committed to holiness, it's going to spread. And so it says in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should go restore him gently. But watch yourself so that you will not also be ensnared by the same sin. Tempted. Jesus cannot, will not tolerate any evil whatsoever. The whole witness of the church is threatened by sin. And if the church is enticed to evil, it will become worldly and corrupt and can no longer be Christ's representatives in Pergamum. He would rather fight against that church with the sword of his mouth than allow them to continue bearing his name in that community with evil and sin in their hearts and corrupt. So he promises a reward to those who overcome, hidden manna and a secret stone. In every case, as in verse 17, he says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word. And I've said many, many times before, faith is the eyesight of the soul. So what do you see? Well, you see the holiness of Christ, but you also see yourself. You see the truth about yourself. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, but it's also the conviction of things not seen. And the word conviction there in Hebrews 11.1 1, means as in convicted in a court of law or being convicted by something very seriously in a sermon. Faith convicts you of the, of the sin that's at work in your life and in your heart. You see it in light of Christ's holiness. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the, to the churches. We have the same dangers facing us today that the church had in Pergamum. Just a different form or pattern, but it's the same thing. So what does Christ promise? To him who overcomes, to the conquerors, to the one who rise up, who wage war and fight and overcome. That's the essence of the holiness, the battle that Christ has given us. He says in Romans 8, 13 and 14, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. So if you're a child of God, the Holy Spirit's going to get you up every day, put your spiritual armor on, call you to put on your own spiritual armor, and lead you into battle against sin. Battle for holiness. Now, if you overcome, look what he says, verse 17, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, the word manna harkens back to the exodus, of course, and the bread that came down from heaven. And they fed on it and they, they nour- nourished themselves day after day from the manna. This is the hidden manna. So it's like a secret spiritual manna. And I think there we need to believe what Jesus said in, in John chapter 6. I am the bread of heaven that came down from heaven. I am the bread. If anyone feeds on me, he will live forever. So it's that, that recognition that Jesus is all we need. And feeding on him, feeding on his death and his resurrection, feeding on that, we gain nourishment, we gain strength. It's a hidden manna, it's a, it's a feeding on Christ for the internal spiritual nature. If you will overcome, you will have a deeper, wider, more fulfilling relationship with Christ. Sin doesn't satisfy. 
Someone said that like viewing internet pornography, it's like a, it's like a, um, a, somebody who's very thirsty and they drink salt water, very salty water. And as soon as it's done, you're immediately thirsty again. It does not satisfy. It does not bring. But the beauty of our walk with Christ, the hidden manna, you eat and you're completely satisfied. You have a, a, a sense of joy and fulfillment. And you also have the sense that this is just the beginning. That Christ has so much more joy to give you, so much more feasting in, in heaven to give you. And these things are just a foretaste. So if you will overcome, you will feed on the hidden manna and know you're going to be feasting in heaven. And he says, I'll give you a white stone with a new name written on it that known only to him. And, and there, sometimes people liken it to the Urim and Thummim of the Old Testament. The priests would have these two stones, a, a white one and a black one. And they were polished stones. And, and they would ask a, a yes-no question and they would roll out one of the stones. And if it was white, it was yes. And if it was black, it was no. They, they are likening it to that, similar to a, a, a sense of Jesus as the fulfillment. He is the yes and he is the uh, amen. I'll give you the white stone. Others linking it to a, link it to a diamond or something precious. And all of this points to a new identity that Christ will give us as priests in his name. Priests on earth and the new universe that's coming. So the hidden manna and the white stone and the new name, they all point to an eternity of deeply, richly satisfying relationship with Christ. Enjoyed eternally in heaven, but we can have foretaste now if you'll overcome. All right, so applications very briefly because I've been making applications through. The first, obviously, is the gospel. I am pledged week after week to preach the gospel to any that come here. And I don't assume that you know any of what I've been talking about experientially. But you have come here today. Maybe you've been invited and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. There is a fear motive. Jesus is going to come. And he's going to fight against all of his enemies with the sword of his mouth. There is a judgment coming. It's appointed for each one of us to die and after that to face judgment. But God sent Jesus to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And if you trust in Christ and believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins, you will be clean, you'll be cleansed and made a new creature and you can live a new life, walk in holiness of life like we've been talking about. So come to Christ, trust in him. Now, to the church, I want to say to you, recognize the terrible dangers of worldliness. You can't see Satan's throne. I'm not saying that Durham is a place where Satan dwells, where Satan has his throne. He's not omnipresent. I mean, he's very fast, but he's not omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent. But there are dangers. And I think the idea of where Satan has his throne in Pergamum, the idea is look at your community And look at the world and what is going on and what allurements to sin are popular here in Durham. What kind of wrong-headed persuasions are going out in our community? What kinds of things are they luring people to commit sin uh, in? And and how how are they drawing people to sin? Realize that's what's going on. That's the satanic persuasion going on in in our culture. Now next week we're going to talk more about sexual sin. So I'm not going to say much about it. But begin thinking and praying. If you're somebody that's already addicted to pornography on, online, the, the advice is very plain and clear. I would turn you to James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. And we'll talk more about this next week. But the idea there is friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Submit to God. Confess your sins to Him. Plead with Him for forgiveness. Ask Him to break the invisible chains 
of this sin that's, the, that's holding on your heart. And I'm going to save the rest of my comments about that to next week. Finally, let's be active in each other's lives. I don't know whether these Balaamites, these Nicolaitans were overtly doing it or whether there was a hidden click in the group. But the fact is we need to be a church for one another. We need to hold each other accountable. Ask good accountability questions. Men with men, women with women. Pairing up. People that hold each other accountable, that help each other to grow. That'll pray for each other and seek protection from this hidden conspiracy that's seeking to draw all of us into darkness. Close with me if you would in prayer. Father, we thank you for these seven churches. We thank you for their messages. We thank you for how they teach us the truth and guide us into all truth. Lord, I pray that you would break the power of canceled sin and set prisoners free. Father, I pray that if there are any here that are struggling with hidden secret patterns of sin, that they would find forgiveness and power to break those hidden chains through the word of God. Lord, I pray that you would give us a healthy fear of that sword that comes out of your mouth and that we would be willing to repent and walk in light of your holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.